Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Yay, Matt. Sup? <laughs> Spectology is a podcast where each month we pick a book, read it, and talk about it over the course of two episodes. This is our post-read episode for Empress of Forever uh, by Max Gladstone, which is a book that we just finished. We're going to talk about full spoilers this whole episode. Uh, if you've listened before, you know the drill. If you haven't, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> should should be a fun time. Um, <laughs> so before we fully get started, I had I had two things. Um, I wanted to do a little like mini things I like first, which is like totally <sighs> neither here nor there. And I'm surprising Matt, Matt with this. <laughs> he has no idea this is coming. Um I just saw it like an hour before we started recording, Matt. I just saw this, um, do you know, Bon Appetit, the like magazine? Yeah. Yeah. And they have course. like their YouTube channel. Um, and one of the things they do on their YouTube channel is they have like Carla, who's one of the like test kitchen people who's like, you know, often on their videos, she'll do these videos where she, um, teaches like an actor or some famous entertainer to cook while neither of them can actually look at each other. So she's just describing what to do to them. Oh yeah. I've seen those and they're great. They're great. And they just published one with Michael Shannon. And I think it's the best video on the internet. Oh, that's I think like awesome. we're done with the internet now. Like YouTube can shut down because they did it. Like oh, <laughs> it's so amazing. I'm going to watch that but right after this. He's just <laughs> the greatest. I was like cackling out loud, like home alone watching it. It was so good. <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> so I just wanted to get that out of the way. I needed to tell somebody about it. <laughs> um, and then well, also that is gonna be excellent hashtag content for me. <laughs> if, if folks can't tell, I'm a little bit sick today. Um, I'm a little bit loopy. Uh, so like apologies in advance. Also, uh, due to my being sick, we had to like change our recording schedule. Cause I was actually really, really sick earlier in the week. So, um, We'd had a guest plan for today and I, we'd like talked about it a little bit. We hadn't announced who it was. I did just want to like point out that like it's not their fault at all that they're not on it. It is like mine for being sick and needing to like move to a time where he wasn't able to record. So um, we will get them on later. There's plans. Everything is good there. But that's also why like sort of like we had talked about like, ooh, special guest. And then it didn't materialize. Um, it is it is me, not them in case, you know, I think folks might be able to guess who it is, which is why I want to be a little bit like, no, this is like not, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like blame, blame rest where, where it should. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way too, just because we had talked about that a little bit. But yes, okay. Empress of Forever. Gladstone. <laughs> the main event. Fucking talk about it. It was good. How did yeah, you like you, it? You, oh, how did I like it? Yeah. I mean, I love this book. This, uh, you know, I, I sort of, um, I mean, I think you you wanted to read this too, but, mm -hmm. but uh, I think that I was sort of pushing it a little more as a book that we should read because um, I had read it uh, a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved it. So this is a book that is in some ways designed to appeal to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is uh, closely based on Journey to the West, which is a wonderful old Chinese novel um, that is widely beloved in a lot of the world um, and less well known in the West, but mm -hmm. very well known in East Asia. Um, mm -hmm. And in addition to being based on that which is a thing that I love already. Um, this novel is kind of a space opera slash kind of modern, 
you know, adventure story style retelling of mm. of Journey to the West, which are all and all of those things are things that I love. <laughs> um, I also love Max's writing. Mm-hmm. Max, you know, full disclosure is a very good friend. Um, and like old friend, like long before yeah. he had the writing career. Right? And um, so, you know, <laughs> it's it's not a surprise that I like this book. Right. I, <laughs> what I about was, you, Adrian? I was going to say it's like made for you both kind of like figuratively and like literally to a degree since you like know him <laughs> and <laughs> talk to him. Um, I and I guess we've also we've had him on the podcast before um, for the Nomon episodes like a, almost exactly a year ago. Folks can go find those. Um I really enjoyed it. So I had heard about it for the first time during the like Nomon read, like either you or him. I forgot. I forget who had like mentioned that he was like still writing it or just finished writing it at that point or something. I mean, stuff takes forever from going like from written to actually like published and release. Um, But, you know, I had read one of his books before the first book that he published i i had read before and like that would be three parts dead yeah three parts dead and i had really liked that but also like the kind of like you know urban fantasy ish type thing isn't really my genre and so when i heard that he was publishing something that was like totally in my genre i got really excited (laughs) (laughs) um so that's what uh yeah so i've been excited to you know read the book for the podcast but also just read the book period uh since i heard about it like a year ago so i um i really liked it i have a couple of thoughts about maybe like the structure overall um you know i feel like i can't i can never just say nice things about a book (laughs) (laughs) um but i i really enjoyed it i really um one thing that you know we talked a little bit about this before i'd actually finished reading the book but it is a uh you know it's a standalone novel. It's not like really meant to be part mm-hmm. of some larger series. You'd mentioned something about it maybe being like almost planned as a trilogy and then like asking how can you combine a trilogy into like one single book or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, to be to be a little more precise about that, um, uh, Max never planned this to be more than one book. But the concept was, you know, what if I took the things that might constitute a series and just like crammed them into one book? And right. tried on purpose to sort of make it dense, but to have an ending and to like conclude. Cool. <laughs> right. And I, I liked that. I like endings that conclude. And also it was very, very good. Like in particular, I was incredibly. Um, the ending was good. <laughs> I really liked <laughs> the ending. I thought it was like a phenomenal, like thematic and plot ending both like the way those tied together was just like super super tight i mean you know spoilers all the way through we will talk about the ending i think coming up here pretty soon but it 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 was um yeah that in particular i liked a lot uh and and the whole book was very good it was definitely it was fun it was propulsive like i said i think i got maybe a little bit towards the like like the first quarter of the second half or something like that, it started to be a little bit like, 
you know, it, it isn't this sort of like picaresque or like, you know, it's not episodic, but it is like adventure based kind of narrative structure mm-hmm. where like the adventures all run into each other, but they're also two degree distinct adventures. And there was like some point again, kind of towards the first half of the second half where I felt a little bit like, oh, this is get like this structure is wearing on me a little bit. It's like yet another new place with like another kind of like arc. And then we're going to go to another new place with another of this exact kind of arc. Um, but it, you know, especially again, towards the end, it really like pulled that around and like the theme started to really like coalesce in a way that, that made a lot of sense for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I would like, you know, wholeheartedly recommend it. And in particular, I really enjoyed the world building and just the, you know, kind of like, Big yeah, that, gonzo space opera thing that yeah. we haven't done on the podcast in a while was really yeah. fun to do. Oh man, there's so many things that I mean, I, I'm going to be a little bit of a broken record because I, I basically like everything about it, mm-hmm. which I know is kind of boring to talk about. But there oh. are a lot of there are a lot of things that I like and a lot of reasons why I like them. Right. Um, and world I mean, building I, is a big I, one too. I think ultimately, it. like, I would rather read books that we like on this podcast than that we don't <laughs> like, right? I mean, like, I think you yes. and I both feel this way. And, you know, in so much as I offer any critique, it's because, like, I enjoy being critical and really pulling things apart. Not because yeah. I, like, disliked it in any way. Yeah, nothing like that. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, should we do content warnings at all before we get going? We've been, like, forgetting yeah, this sometimes. That's so, true. You know. Um, so, you know, this is a little bit... Uh, less content warning than some of the things that we've read, although there is some uh, stuff about mind control and consent. Yeah, there's a uh, lot I'll, of stuff about consent, I'd say. Yeah. But it's in the text, too. Right. The book itself is uh, dealing with that, and um, the narrative is very interested in those questions. It's not a book that just like throws stuff that you might hate about consent at you without being aware of what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a book that is trying to be aware of the kind of difficult consent issues that it's dealing with. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, other than that, there's a lot of violence. I would describe it as some, somewhat cartoon violence, I guess. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not like gruesome in any way, I don't think. Um, but it's definitely sort of adventure, you know, serial style nonsense, mm-hmm. style, style violence, not nonsense at all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what do you think of that, Adrian? Yeah, I, I think that's about it. Uh, but, you know, we especially I think we'll end up talking about the consent stuff. And so I wanted to to bring that up. Sweet. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about in particular. We were talking a little earlier about kind of how to, you know, which which things we wanted to talk about and kind of what to how to organize it. And I think, you know, one thing that I really wanted to talk about was Journey to the West in a little more detail. But I don't want to get too bogged down in like, you know, monologuing about my you know <laughs> countless array of like opinions about that right. it's not so, a college lecture <laughs> um i think well i i had some because i don't know anything about journey to the west but what you and i have like talked about so i'm curious so i'm super curious to like hear from you yeah so i think i'll i'll say a few things and then i think if we could just like kind of talk about it that yeah. would be the best way to do it yeah um so first of all, I think the most important thing to say is that, you know, if you don't, if you're not familiar with the story of Journey to the West, um, you might be surprised to know that this book is very similar to the story of Journey to the West. Oh, interesting. Okay. That was going to be one of my first questions. So great. Yeah. Um, and so similar, in fact, that it becomes very interesting, the places where Max has chosen to deviate from the original, so to hmm. speak. Mm-hmm. So the story of Journey to the West is the story of 
Uh, I, I, I talked a little bit about this last time, but I'll get into a slightly more depth now uh, without going crazy. It's the story of a monk named Tripitaka who undergoes a pilgrimage to India from China. This is based on a real event that happened in the 600s when the monk Shenzang went on a pilgrimage from China to India. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back then, it obviously- It was written tra- about in like the 15th century though, right? Or 16th yeah, the, century. The, the, the main kind of text of Journey to the West is a novel in yeah. 100 chapters that was written somewhere in the middle of the 16th century. Okay. You know, no one knows exactly when. Um, but, you know, probably between 15, you know, 40 and 1580. Okay. So, um, you know, the, uh, the story is the story of this monk based on a real actual historical event, um, taking a very, very long journey of many, many, many years to the West, hence the title. And along the way, he's beset by all sorts of demons and monsters and supernatural encounters. And he himself is just a guy. He's a very holy man, but he's just a man. He has no particular ability to fight things or, and he's very weak, um, you know, physically compared to these various demons. And so he is on, on his pilgrimage, he is defended by his disciples, uh, of which there are a few, but the main one is Sun Wukong, who is the monkey king. Mm -hmm. The monkey king is a figure of legend in, you know, a lot of different cultural contexts. Right. That's something um, that I am actually familiar with outside of Journey to the West. Um, I think partially through, <laughs> this is going to be dumb, uh, Wishbone, like Wishbone, <laughs> the, the old PBS, like, you know, talking <laughs> dog, reading books, uh, had a like an episode on <laughs> Monkey at one point, yeah. I remember. Um, yeah. So sort of adventures. That will derive from this. Um, in the context of most of the sort of Western versions of monkey king most of them actually come from journey to the west itself okay cool um so for instance there was a cartoon on like i forget what channel but when i was little there was a cartoon on american television this would be like in the 90s um that depicted the first 12 chapters or so of journey to the west as Mm. just like a cartoon i forget what it's called but it's something about monkey because the first 12 chapters or so are mostly about monkey Uh. um and, and, you know, that was just on TV, like when I was a kid and, and like, it was billed as this like store set of legends about this, like famous mighty monkey King guy who, you know, defies the will of the Jade emperor in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, that has been made into so many TV shows and movies all over the world. There's also a separate, you know, context in India with a very, you know, important set of, um, religious beliefs and myths around the figure of Hanuman, who is a legendary monkey warrior. There are a huge number of connections. This is already getting to be a little bit too much, but (laughs) suffice it to say, suffice it to say that, you know, the monkey king, and in addition to the monk himself, the monkey king is the main character of Journey to the West. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, Journey to the West is really just about the monkey king himself. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get to an interesting, you know, parallel between Journey to the West and um, Empress of Forever. Right. So this might be sort of like the question I asked of like, who's the monk and who is monkey king in this novel? (laughs) Right. So um, it's pretty clear the the Empress of Forever hues very closely. The the, um, Viv is Tripitaka. It's it's very clear. It's not there's no ambiguity about that. Right. And the reason for that is, is that she is considered very important but is not herself able to defend herself from the insane array of like crazy you know super sci-fi beasts right that can right. attack her oh and um, of course the jade 
emperor in heaven is like the empress of forever. Is, Green is her color. Is, right, right. Exactly. Is the Jade Empress. Right. Got right. It. So um, Zan, uh, that actually should have been clear to me based on what I do know about this. But I just yeah. got that. <laughs> That's fine. Zanj is the monkey king. Um, right. And the reason for that is that Zanj is described to be a lot like the monkey king, including the eye color, including her uh, various weapons and accoutrement, mm-hmm. which are similar to the monkey kings. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because Zanj is the greatest warrior in the universe, except for the powers of heaven themselves. <laughs> right. Um, and. Um, and of course, Zanj has the attitude of the Monkey King. Zanj is basically a troublemaker. Zanj is like considered, you know, more or less somebody who, you know, has what they want and like will do what they want to get it and like cares about their people, but like doesn't, you know, necessarily have the interests of the whole universe top of mind <laughs> so much right. as she has the interests of her people top of mind. I could go on and on about the similarities well, so another between question. these characters, but. But yeah, why don't you go ahead and I had was, you know, it's like the reason I asked, like, who is the who is the monk here is because there's also Hong. Like there's a literal monk yes. who's like holiness does end up saving the day at the very end of the Indeed. novel. Indeed. So this is where we get into the other disciples. So in the original Journey of the West, um, Tripitaka not only is um, followed by the Monkey King, but also by several other characters that are you know important. Um, one of them is a monk. Um, you know, in English, his name is sometimes rendered as Sandy. Um, you, you know, it would be better to say maybe he's the sand monk or the monk of sand. Oh, cool. Now, this is another interesting thing that Max does. So Max, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels between individual members of Viv's like squad and (laughs) the people in Tripitaka's entourage, but Max also plays with those roles and like mixes Mm -hmm. and matches a little in really fun ways. So, you know, the sand monk, um, and, uh, there's, I'll I'll go through the other disciples as well. There's also, um, the, um, the pig of eight prohibitions (laughs) who is, whose name is sometimes rendered as pigsy or something like that. (laughs) Um, who is, you know, he, he, so the pig of eight prohibitions and the sand monk and um, the dragon prince, those are sort of the, the other non, non-monkey king disciples. Now, the dragon prince uh, takes the form of the horse that Tripitaka rides. Ah, so he okay. is literally the method of their conveyance, right. although he is also in his own right uh, a mystical creature. Um, the pig of eight prohibitions and the, and the sand monk are both, um, they're both like mythical beings who did some evil thing and mm-hmm. are undertaking this quest as a way of redeeming themselves. Mm-hmm. The dragon prince is too. And so, and so is the monkey king actually. So really it's like her, it's like, um, Viv slash Tripitaka is, is sort of like, has this like, you know, incredible, mi- this, this like larger mission and then collects these allies who are in search of their own personal redemption by allying themselves with her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, you know, I mean, if we, we, if we went down the list of the characteristics of these, of these characters, you know, it would, there would be more and more and more parallels. But I think the most interesting thing when we start to draw all these parallels is how Viv and the Monkey King are not like, is the differences between Viv and Tripitaka and the Monkey King and Zanj. One of the biggest things is that Viv is a much stronger character than Tripitaka. Viv mm-hmm. is much more the heroine of her own story than Tripitaka is. Most of the time, Tripitaka, because he's just like a monk, fades into the background while the Monkey King has a bunch of crazy adventures trying to save him from all these monsters. 
Right. He becomes a little bit of an object as opposed to a character sort of yeah, thing. Totally. That's a really important uh, difference. You know, so whereas The Journey of the West is in a lot of ways kind of mainly about the Monkey King, this book is really mainly about Viv. Right. And that's very interesting. That's actually an incredibly interesting, like, switch. And it it, it it has a lot of effects on the narrative, just that one little thing. Right. Which that, is like, super interesting. affects itself out. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm curious, you know, like, from a thematic point of view, right, like, well, one of the main themes of Empress of Forever tends to be about... You know, this idea of like, you're not just yourself, you're also the people that you surround yourself with and like they infect yeah. you uh, it, to a degree and you mm-hmm. infect them. And it's, you know, it's like the heart in my heart, like the heart of you in my heart <laughs> kind of, you know, this is where like the Ava stuff keeps coming back up that we talked about <laughs> as well. Um, but like that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I totally agree. <laughs> that that to me had this very much. um yeah, I guess I like I'm kind of curious both like the degree to which some of that is maybe just in the original text, because I think that is a fairly like Buddhist idea in so much as like I understand, you know, kind of like modern Western Buddhism. Um, but also, you know, the question of like what other sorts of you said like that has a lot of effects. I guess I'm curious about like, you know, there's these these it's an adaptation in terms of like plot and characters and like to what degree is an adaptation in terms of like its themes to what degree is it like using this original story to tell like a very different, like a story with a very different moral at the end, maybe. Totally. I mean, I would say it is, it is doing is, it is doing that classic move of taking the structure of a, of a story, but using it to, to kind of talk about themes very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that is how I would describe what it's doing. I'm for, for one thing, the thing you just described is really not, I don't think it's present much in the original. Mm-hmm. I mean that you could, you could draw some kind of more, you know, attenuated parallels, but it's mostly not that it's most like the original has a lot of stuff about, um, like the, the redemption, I guess is yeah. a much bigger theme because the, the beginning of the original is just all about all the terrible things that monkey does <laughs> slash terrible slash funny. The original right. is also very funny. Right. Um, well, he, well, and he, like you, you called him like a trickster before. I think he very much fits yeah. that archetype of like, it's not that he's evil. He's not, he's not, you know, like a Satan type character. No. He's like kind of selfish and a prick, but also like a funny one. Yeah, but also really, I mean, not a total prick at all. In, in a lot of ways, he just kind of, he has a lot of the characteristics of, uh, of you know, a kind of uncultured person, of, mm-hmm. of somebody who's just like a, a decent person, but who, who has their, like who has their sort of various appetites and desires um, more, you know, out of control than 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 perhaps a more civilized or refined or religious person would. Right. A lot of the original has to do with Monkey and the various other disciples, you know, having to struggle between being the original version of themselves that that is unrefined and um, out of control mm-hmm. and finding slash making better versions of themselves that actually have the ability perhaps to become enlightened. But, you know, that said, you know, I mean, it's it's also like there's another really big difference that I want to bring up real quick, yeah. which you may, you may also have questions about, and that is the the crown that Zange wears. Mm. So there, you know, so so Monkey King has a similar uh, device on his head oh. put there, but 
it's very different how it plays out. This is actually one of the bigger differences between the books. I think it's super interesting. So um, what happens is Tripitaka frees the Monkey King from this imprisonment, which I won't go into, but whatever. Mm -hmm. It's similar mm -hmm. to Zanj. Mm -hmm. Tripitaka frees the Monkey King, but not because he pities him or anything like that. Rather, because the same heavenly powers that have sent Tripitaka on his quest have decreed that this will be a good way for Monkey King to redeem himself. So it's not like this act ah. of sort of intimate human pity or, or sympathy, so much as it's like this sort of heavenly ordained thing. And then right. once he frees Although Monkey King... Although it's not an act of pity in the... Right. In Empress of Fred. Like I would call it, you know, rather like a very calculated power play on Viv's part. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. It's, Which it's maybe not... gets into her redemption arc and that's like a new yeah, totally. element as well. Right. Um, the point is just that it's not like an individual decision. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, a it's this, it's this like almost fated thing. Mm -hmm. Um, or it's the decision of a higher power. Um, and, and then when Monkey King is free, freed, he does not, he's not like already wearing this crown thing or anything. What happens is he initially just starts following Tripitaka without it. And they, they have a couple of encounters without it. And then Monkey King, like, Tripitaka, like basically Monkey King kills some people because that's the mm. kind of person he is. Like mm -hmm. they get attacked and Monkey King like kills the people that attack him. And Tripitaka's like, yo, Monkey King, like you can't just kill people. If you want to be a priest and a better person, you need to like abstain from murder, even if it's in self-defense. Like you could right. have just knocked them out or ran, ran them off or something. And right. Monkey King's like, how dare you tell me what to do? I was saving our lives, blah, blah, blah. And then Monkey King just runs off. And so... This um, this Buddhist deity, Guan Yin, um, appears to Tripitaka and gives him the crown and this uh, incantation to, to recite when when and, and tells Tripitaka to put it onto the Monkey King. And then what happens is Tripitaka lies to the Monkey King, which I always thought was absolutely ridiculous because it's like he's supposed he's just got finished lecturing Monkey King about like, you know, moral behavior. <laughs> and then he like tricks him outrageously into putting this crown on and then uses the crown to control him. Tripitaka has no, totally unlike in Empress of Forever, Tripitaka has no like compunctions about using the crown to control the Monkey King. Guanyin, the, the goddess of mercy, Guanyin, tells him to do this and then mm -hmm. he does it and he does it like periodically throughout the rest of the story. And in, in no way is this considered to be like a bad thing. It's it's the natural thing for a master to do to a disciple to teach that disciple a lesson. Right. Like, I was actually just going to say that actually yeah. jives pretty well with some of what I know of you know Eastern style Buddhism and the, the idea yeah. that like no, you must actually like submit to your like human master on earth, like right. your teacher, your guru, whatever, however you want to call it, is someone who you know like you must submit your full will to at times. Yeah. And, like do things you don't want to do because just because they told you to. Yeah. So it's pretty different, right? What do you think mm. about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's very different. I mean, I think some of that plays into maybe like both a different conception of like, you know, what the liberation of all sentient beings actually means and kind of like Eastern and Western styles of Buddhism and just like modern Western values generally. Um, but also, you know, some of it ties into this idea of, um, my understanding is that uh, the I, sorry I don't I will not pronounce his name right so I'm not going to try the monk in Journey to the West is like mm -hmm. like his story is not one of character development like he starts as an Correct. enlightened being and ends as an enlightened being whereas yeah. the journey of Viv is one of development right I mean like and yeah. this is some of it just being a 
modern novel. Like you don't want a main character who has no character development, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that's not the story that we tell and we consume. <laughs> um, if, if, if for nothing, I'm sure there's other reasons that Max wrote it that yeah. way, but there's also just that element of like, these are different kinds of not like novels mean different things now in America than they did in China 500 plus years ago. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Like that, that's, like that that's sort of where the the one of these things where like viv having this character arc and like building her as a real character has like as you said these kind of butterfly effects of like you know well let's then interrogate what it means to put the crown on the monkey king slash zange and like who put it there and you know it's still viv in both of these cases it's you know i guess the other sort of like big departure is that you know, Viv is the Empress and the Empress is Viv. Like, oh, like yeah. they are, you know, yeah, copies of each other slash different aspects or avatars of each other, however, yeah. however you want to think about it. And that, you know, is one that I'm, I'm pretty sure is not an element of Journey to the West. Um, You're right. That's correct. <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting, though, because um, one of the major, another major element of Journey to the West is uh, transformations. Mm-hmm. Um, among the monkey King's powers, um, that are among his most famous powers, um, are, is his ability to transform himself and take different forms right. and shapes right. and even to like take multiple shapes. And he has these battles and he does various cunning things, um, to take advantage of that, you know, and fight things that other things that can transform. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of very famous stories where things that have the same shape encounter each other. So the monkey King has this big transformation battle with this other character, um, Arlongshan, and uh, they're evenly matched. And at the very end, the Monkey King takes Arlongshan's form and goes to Arlongshan's home, and that's where he is finally defeated. And they they are they fight each other as each other. Right. There's another there's another very famous episode much later in the story where the Monkey King has cause to return to his home. Um, like he's a king of of this mountain, right? He's actually right. a real king. Like he has subjects and stuff. So he returns to his home at one point to find that it has been taken over by someone who has assumed his form, Ooh. which of course is exactly an episode that occurs in Empress of Forever. Max has taken that that episode, right? And and and, and given us his spin on it. But the point is that there are a lot of these instances of people ha- having like changing forms. The Monkey King, like you know, pretends to be other people at various points, and so it's very interesting that Max has added an episode of that as part of the frame story and mm-hmm. made it so that like it's like these different forms of the same thing are, are the whole thing also kind of reduces to an uh, an instance of Zanj fighting herself it, it it viv fighting herself is is like is also added into this right which i think is really really interesting well and you also have just like gray in general uh, yes oh yeah sort of like the gray goo kind of but like what does it mean for different like you know strains of gray goo to have their own identity <laughs> and like oh, yeah. how do they inter- and it's like and that's also like you know what what is gray goo but something that is like itself able to take different forms mm-hmm. and like that's its main power and so i think there's totally. a lot of um like that seems to be rather than just you know monkey it's like sort of the main one of the main questions or tricks or whatever you want to call it that max uses in empress of forever to kind of interrogate these things it was actually so when i you know talking just about empress of forever for a moment like when i was reading the novel it was um when they first got to zanj's 
home and we find out that there's like a copy of Zanch or maybe Zanch mm-hmm. is the copy or like wh- whatever is happening. Who's real. Yeah. Know, who's real at the point. Uh, but, you know, and it's like, well, that's. But we had just learned that about Viv and the Empress. And it was this little moment of like, mm-hmm. OK, it's just the same trick again. Like, what's going on here? Um, I was I was honestly a little bit skeptical when I started reading. It's like this is going to be kind of hard to pull off in a way that's actually like interesting and saying something instead of just like playing the same trick twice. Uh, and he he did it. I actually, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, but it was yeah, also. That... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just like, it, it was one of those moments while reading it where I was a little bit like, huh, like, I wonder how this is going to play out. And one of the ways it played out was that the like characters in the text, like talk about how like, oh, like I, we are closer to each other because we've realized we've had the same thing. And this is not just, you know, it's not just a matter of like, oh, it just happened to happen this way. It's also like, this is one of the tricks that the Empress plays. Like, it's not mm-hmm. just like Max's trick. It's a- it's actually the Empress's yeah. trick. And it's a thing she yeah. likes to do. It's a way that she breaks people or changes them is by like copying them and using that copy in the way that she wants. And it's like yeah. how she felt comfortable doing it with herself as well. I love that. I really like that a lot. I also think it has to do with like our understanding ourselves. I mean, as, you know, if, if you if you, you know, also think of the entire episode as being in some sense Viv inside her own head and like this mm-hmm. entire book is just like the story of Viv, like doing all having these adventures and battles like within some version of her own mind. Well, although, you know, you, you know, in some sense, literally in another sense, not literally at all, but like still it's like she has created this copy of herself in order to test herself against it. She it, it is it is like the the way one of the ways that we understand ourselves is by using our theory of ourselves in our own mind and testing another version of it against ourselves, you know? And that's, that's a very modern way of thinking about this. I think that that's not something that's present in the original. And it's really cool to see that in a version of this story. You know, one of the reasons I love this so much is that like it, you know, in a lot of the versions of journey to the West that I've seen, there isn't that kind of, um, psychology present right Um, they're not interested in those kind of questions but mm -hmm. this is (laughs) i'm actually curious uh this was something i'd meant to ask last episode and totally forgot um is there a translation or edition or something Ah. of journey to the west that you would recommend to our listeners if they wanted to pick that up for themselves yeah maybe you know this is a bridged version or so like i I don't know i'm very curious like is there sort of a because it's really freaking long it's not like a book it's I mean, it's not it's not that long. I think the biggest problem is that it's very old and it's it's written in a way that is very different from a modern novel. So, mm-hmm. for instance, there's a lot of poetry interspersed with prose in mm-hmm. the original. Um, the original, of course, is not written not written in modern Chinese at all. It's written in uh, Ming Dynasty Chinese, which is different. So a lot of it, 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 a, a big problem that a translation can have of something like this is that it can be kind of too scholarly um, or it can be sort of it can get bogged down in the poetry, which is particularly difficult to translate because it's poetry. And that's always a problem. Right. My personal recommendation, which may be controversial, <laughs> is the Arthur Whaley abridged translation, which is sold under the title Monkey, a folktale of China. Um, OK, cool. I really like it. I think mm-hmm. it's really fun. I think you can pick it up and you can just read it as if it's a novel. And it's really a great time. If you like, especially if you like, you know, 
funny adventures. It's very right. funny. There's a lot of satire in it too. Satire mm-hmm. of like bureaucracy and government <laughs> <laughs> and religion. <laughs> right, right. Well, Ming Dynasty China. So <laughs> that's yeah. that's great. I mean, that's kind of what I like wanted was that recommendation, partially because like, you know, the folks who are academics who are listening, who like know enough and like want to find like a really accurate, whatever, you know, for whatever word accurate means translation can do that. Like that's often easier to do like through research than it is to find the version that is like, I don't know anything and I want to like read a fun story because this sounds interesting. Like that can, for me often be the like harder thing of like, okay, well if that's what I want, then what translation do, do I pick up? Do I pick up an abridged version? Like, is there something that gives me the like broad overview without getting me bogged down in the details potentially? Yeah. Yeah. The problem of course is there are actually other abridged versions, (laughs) right? but I, I would recommend this one. Um, Perfect. And if anyone wants to have a, a more in-depth discussion of it, um, maybe, you know, send us in your thoughts and uh, we'll we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess that's spectologypod at gmail.com. Like I'm the one who checks it, but I can forward to Matt anything that is specific to, you know, Journey to the West and connect folks um, if they're interested in talking more about that. Mm-hmm. Cool. 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 Well, that was that was really interesting. I'm glad we saved some of that for the post read, just because like I, it's nice to be able to like talk really in depth about some of this stuff. Like, like you know, I yeah. don't know anything about it. I'm really like excited to like learn about these, you know, because it, it's a you know, I didn't know anything about it, and obviously really enjoyed the book. Like the novel does not require like intimate knowledge of Journey to the West in order to be fun, but it is like also always fun to like have like new information kind of like open Mm -hmm. up old information to be able to like connect dots that you previously did not know were connected or almost like sort of like unfold a sheet of paper that you thought was just one page and you realize like oh there's multiple pages stuck together here totally and i do think if you like this book if you read this book and enjoy it you may be interested in checking out that that arthur whaley translation i mean Mm -hmm. it's fun you know Mm -hmm. if you think this is fun you might like that too right Cool. I think another thing that I was, you know, kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, and I think we mentioned it before, but it's, um, you know, in terms of the structure of the novel, like, like, obviously, Journey to the West is one like big influence here. I think another big influence is like, RPGs, like role playing Mm -hmm. games, and like, particularly like, like as I was calling it like an adventure and like maybe not episodic, but kind of like adventure based narrative. That's sort of what I'm thinking about. Like it feels to me in some ways like a, you know, a campaign, like where there's all these like kind hmm. of like semi discreet adventures yeah. within it. It's worth build saying, up to a larger thing. Yeah, totally. I, I think you're completely right. Max has even said publicly that he was inspired by RPGs, um, which is right. a thing that he's into. Um, But it is worth saying also that that is another thing that is similar to Journey to the West. Journey to the West itself is very episodic. Mm -hmm. Um, And Max has even taken a lot of the individual episodes in Empress of Forever are adaptations of individual episodes um, from Journey to the West. But I do do think you're completely right. I I totally agree with that. I mean, it's really interesting to think about um, the influence that that has because the narrative of an RPG campaign is often very different from the narrative of a novel. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's a, there's a, I think there is a, um, 
style of novel that is like literally built from someone's D&D campaign that uh, <laughs> tends to not be successful. So I want to like call out that I that's not like this is not a veiled criticism in any way. Uh, yeah, like I think yeah. there are things that are more or less successful in terms of the structure, but I wouldn't say that like the stuff that's less successful is like, oh, because like Max is just taking his D&D campaign and like writing it up. <laughs> like, no, no, obviously that's not what's happening. And I just want no, to be clear yeah. about that sort of thing, because I think that is sort of a little bit of a, you know, may, maybe a little bit of a, of a, of a in joke or in criticism, but definitely what I've heard before of like yeah, various sure. novels of like, oh yeah, that's clearly like this guy had his D and D campaign and he just wrote it up as a novel. And that's why this character disappears midway through. Cause like someone moved. <laughs> oh man. And that's why he can only do that move three times a day. Right. Right. And you know, and something that is, I think a larger problem with those kinds of novels too, is they might not have very much like thematic depth. Like this can often, I think happen with any sort of like, not maybe not fix it up, but but like sometimes a problem of like novels that are essentially a bunch of episodes strung together is that any episode might have a strong theme, but like the meta plot and the meta thematics might be kind of weak. Um, sometimes you might even get like oh, like these different themes like are maybe saying different things. Like this 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 mm. story seems to have one moral and this other story seems to have an almost opposite moral. And like they don't synthesize. They just kind of exist as different things. And I think one thing this book does very well is on a thematic level, um, the themes of the individual stories build on top of each other. The characters change over time, so they might not have acted in the way they do in later stories if they had had that same adventure earlier in the novel, right? Like they are changing and they are becoming, you know, like better people for whatever better means, um, or at least different people through the course of their adventures. And so they're the way they problem solve changes the moral calculus they use changes like all of these things like change over time. Um, and that's really nice to see. And again, I think that the sort of, you know, the end of the novel where the, you know, Hong is able to essentially bridge him and the other to, uh, gray. And, um, what's the name of the pilot? I don't know how to pronounce her name. Oh. It starts with an X and it's clearly like meant to be a Chinese pronunciation that I just can't I, do. I would say um, Shiara. Shiara. Like pronounce okay. it like an SH. Okay, cool. Um, that's kind of my inclination, but it's, you know, a book. So I think right. you can probably do whatever you want. <laughs> right. Well, she like Viv mentioned something about the pronunciation at some point, which is, ah. which is part of why I bring that. But so Shiara. Yeah, I'll no, just you're do right. That. I forget what she says. She does say something about it, though. I forget where that is. Yeah. Right. Um, but but again, Shiara, I think, is um, like he bridges the the three of them together and they're like, you know, empty beings are able to like flow through each other in a pretty cool way. Yeah, um, that's an awesome part. I really enjoyed that. That a lot. is that was actually something that like now that I'm saying that I'm realizing like that was something that I loved from a thematic like meta thematic point of view and that like it was a really cool sort of you know, we talk about literalization sometimes the way that like sci fi can use like technology to talk about ideas to make literal maybe like a moral or a philosophical or whatever like idea and like turn it into a piece of tech in the world and see how you like physically interact with it and like that seemed to be like kind of a literalization of this idea that we talk about where like you know i mean we talked about it in the um 
in a in a couple of episodes recently, including uh, I think some of the the exhalation episodes about how like you are yeah. not just yourself, you are also like your other people who are around you. Um, like it's not just like an influence, but you're actually like pieces of their identity are inside of you and vice versa. And, you know, that's a cool literalization of that or a literalization of sort of the yeah. like Buddhist idea of like emptiness of identity and that there, you know, it's like there is no one singular thing that is you. Um, yeah. At the same time, the like another thing I remember like bothered me in the moment reading it was that for all that that stuff is true and for all like those three had changed to each other, I think one of the problems with having such a strong central lead character in the form of Viv is that you mostly see these other characters through their relationships with her and not actually through the relationships with each other. Like I never at any point in the novel had a really strong grasp on like how Shiara and Hong interacted when it was just the two of them. Like Gray and Shiara didn't seem to be friends. Like Shiara and Viv were lovers and Gray and Viv had their relationship, but like those two didn't necessarily have one. Right. And so like that was one feeling, obviously like it's a book of, many pages there's only so but there's still only so much you can do but it was something that i did feel was maybe like slightly lacking on the like kind of thematic to like text front was this Mm. like seeing the relationships of everyone with each other like i feel like you saw viv and her relationship with everyone else and to a degree you saw a zanj and her relationship to the other three whereas i think the other three you didn't see the relationships to each other quite as much like you mostly mm. saw them interact with either Viv for the most part and Zanj at times. Um, and I think that was maybe sort of like, if it is this story of like all of them, like becoming different pieces of each other and not just of like Viv, then that was maybe something that like, I, I wouldn't have mind being fleshed out to a degree and maybe through, you know, I think another thing, like I said, was there's this feeling of like, they were always going from one adventure to another Like, and the adventures didn't, it's not like one adventure stopped and then like it's the next chapter and the next one begins. It's like every adventure kind of bleeds into the next one. And there's relatively little downtime, even while there was downtime in the like story in terms of like, there was points where it was like, hey, they're traveling between things and they're just hanging out right now. We don't see that on the page all that frequently. Like it does happen, but when it happens, it's usually like intimate character moments, maybe between Viv and Shiara or Viv and Zanj or someone like that. And you see a lot less of just like all of them hanging out together, even though you know it's happening. And I wouldn't have minded like a little bit more of that, like smaller character moments with like the whole cast not on an adventure, not solving problems. It's interesting. Max is very good at this kind of, at like tempo. Like he, he maintains this kind of like continuous interest. I think like, at least for me, he does that Mm -hmm. very, very well, Mm -hmm. but that does mean like, it's a story that, that, you know, doesn't have as much of it. Like, it's almost like the exact opposite of one of these like lit fix stories where like nothing Mm -hmm. happens, like Mm -hmm. where it's somebody sitting around contemplating their relationship or whatever. And then like, they realize something about the relationship and it ends. (laughs) It's like the exact negative image of that. That's that's a little (laughs) bit of a stereotype, but but I've also read that book. So, okay, fair. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some of my favorite parts of this book were actually, I think, um, Orn, which is the planet mm-hmm. Shiara's from? Yeah, yeah. And um, when they're when they meet up with the rest of the Suicide Queens um, on that other thing that, that was turns really out cool, to be right. a ship, right. right? They think it's a planet. 
planetoid or whatever. <laughs> both of those parts do involve Refuge. a little bit more of. Yeah, both of those parts do involve a little bit more of what you're talking about, and it's, it's they just do. Like really they do totally. It's really fun to see these people interact, and also to see them interact with their world. I think yeah. maybe. Um, I don't know if you if you had something more to say on that. Um, I'd love to hear it, but like, I was also interested in talking about the world itself, because like mentioning this like reminds me of how much I completely love the world building. This is also an area where Max is explode, allowing his like you know various other influences and creativity to just like explode totally, and like totally. shower us with like this panoply of insane, ridiculous ideas and images and sounds mm-hmm. um, that are not like. And like, it's not like, oh, that's from Journey of the West. And so is that. And so is that. Nothing like that. It's it's this like crazy kaleidoscope. Right. (laughs) No, I don't. I don't. I'm happy to talk about I don't want to like dwell on it so much as, you know, it was the one maybe like kind of biggest criticism I had was like at times feeling that like the themes actually could have like I felt been served by taking some more of those quiet moments not to say they never happened or whatever but like i actually would have been happy with a little bit more literary kind of you know thinking about your feelings and how you feel about your feelings maybe (laughs) 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 Um, but yeah let's talk about the world building because it's fucking cool it's really fun it's so dope so the first thing i was interested in is so like there's a frame story of viv in like near future what did you think about the near future. Oh, sure. Book. Right. Yeah. That actually another kind of like thing I wondered about, and I think that it, the book actually did this on purpose in a good way. Um, but like a thing that I wondered about when I was starting the book was, so I'll put it this way. I'm a little bit fed up with like Tony Stark stories. I'm a little bit like, like depleted of like, you know, Elon Musk coming to like save the world and save us from ourselves. You know, Tony Stark is the like richest, smartest, best. And so like he's, you know, being the richest and the smartest also makes him like morally the best in his story, like the most interesting to like read. Um, And so in getting a picture of that where it's like, okay, on the one hand, you have like a, you know, a queer woman of color, but who is also like the, you know, richest, best tech mogul in the world who is going to be like our like hero from the beginning. I was a little bit like, okay, I I can take or leave this story to a degree. Like, like that is maybe a like type of character archetype that I'm a little bit like, you know, Elon Musk, but like, oh, actually they're not a dickhead. It's like, yeah, but like all the Elon Musk we actually have are dickheads. So yeah. like that's a little bit of a fantasy in and in and of itself, and maybe not the most interesting fantasy to tell right now. Yeah. That said, I think that like thematically towards the end of the book really pays off when you realize that like oh no, Viv is also a dickhead. Like Viv turns into the Empress not because of some external thing, but because that's who she always was to a degree. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, but I, like as cool yeah. as like she seems at first, she's also, you know, like doesn't have these human connections with other people in a way that would like make her a like real moral person. Yeah. Or she doesn't take them seriously enough. She doesn't allow them to like influence her enough. She has that like. Right. Uh, the lack meta, of vulnerability meta or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She can't be vulnerable enough. Right. Um, 
I, I, so I, I was really interested. It's like, it's funny. That's like a totally different, when I was I know, reading it's a total tangent, but it was the thing. No, that like, no, 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 no. Like it's not, for me. it makes sense. It's just not what I was thinking. When I was reading the beginning, I was thinking like, oh my God, it's monkey's origin story, but <laughs> monkey's the priest. <laughs> right, right, it was, right. Because like, you know, it, it, the structure of this is in some sense, it's like, well, so we have this sort of like little intro section, um, before the kind of main action of the story starts in this like crazy far future insane space world. Right. And the intersection establishes that Viv is somebody who is incredibly powerful and incredibly ambitious and, 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 and like, and arguably incredibly out of control. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. know, like it's not, I mean, she has like a big party and then like cuts her braid off and like disappears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, really like who are you and what are you even doing like are you just trying right. to take over the world seems right. like you're trying to take over the world but i guess you're better than the other guys so i right, don't know right it's like oh the government's bad but like uh you'll do you'll do it right i'll definitely be better than them definitely right and that's the government exactly, is bad yeah. because they're after you okay yeah and that's exactly what monkey is i mean monkey in some sense like if you wanted to make a modern version of monkey like you could do a lot worse than a tony stark character Mm -hmm. Like that's and, 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 and like and yet like the story of what happens is the story of, in fact, there is an order to the universe that does not allow. And the order, you know, the order is not like an order on the level of our petty human orders. Like it's not like there's a government. No, no, no. Right. Way beyond governments, way beyond like whoever is your political boss. There is a sort of natural structure to the universe that will not allow you to just be this like comic book person. Like mm -hmm. like you could try. But like eventually you'll have to like face the sort of deeper moral reality of the universe and like, you know, atone for anything that you may have done that relates to that. That's the right. structure of Journey to the West. And I think that's like a big part of the structure here. Like it's, you know, Viv, what, what happens to Viv at the end in the other section of like normal world where she sort of in, like in the very brief moment that we see her back in the normal world at the very, very end on this beach you know? Right, right. Well, um, no, but she's not back in the normal world. She has like literally come back to like the Earth in the far future that has just been like held together with the Empress's will and like in an unchanging state. Yeah, in an unchanging state. But right. it's like in some sense she's gone back. It's obviously not the same. Nothing's right, the same. Right. But like, right, just like she never goes back into her like you know wormhole simulation. Like we get told of that, but she herself never actually gets to go back there. I think it's worth pointing out. Yeah, sure. But she's so she's back in this in this in this like it's like the 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 bookend to the initial intro section where she's on this sort of recognizable planet, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, what what has happened to her? Like, what has she experienced? Like, what is different about her at that point? Like. Has she has she like given up her ambition in some sense? I mean, what what exactly has changed in her mind? Has she like embraced her vulnerability? It's so interesting to think about what that mm. literally is and like what this is trying to say about what like the what, what the, do you think it literally is? I think it's supposed to be. An enlightenment, an enlightenment uh, analog that that has to do with like love and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the idea is that if we accept love and vulnerability both of those things together, um, then we can have ambition that makes sense and we can have like goals and like drive and like all these other things that may, you know, 
in our real lives kind of conflict with our moral selves mm-hmm. um, in, in way we can like channel those correctly and we mm-hmm. can be a better version of that person. Um, you know, I think it's funny to think about because like clearly we th- clearly my, my, my sense is that clearly Viv doesn't want to be the empress. Like she doesn't actually want that to happen. She yeah. wants some different thing to happen. So she's not going to try to just take over everything. Which mm-hmm. is what she would have done. Right. I mean, she beginning. breaks the cloud instead of taking it over right. herself. So what is she going to do instead? I don't know. I mean, I think that's kind of the like this sort of like, that's the ambi- ambiguity. Like what comes after this sort of enlightenment is like not right. completely known. It's not really described. And right. I don't really I mean, know like what, I know. <laughs> what's the final sentence of something about like her and Zange like continue to have adventures or something along those lines. I forget exactly. Find allies, take care of yourselves, work for the liberation of all sentient beings. That's the end of the acknowledgments. Right, right, right. (laughs) I was going to say that's the acknowledgments. (laughs) That's literally Max talking to us. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually, it's actually Calvin and Hobbes. It's let's go exploring. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's, that's it. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I think I I was texting you while I was kind of finishing up the end here. Um, And, you know, like I had mentioned at one point, like, oh, the kind of like the second half is like feeling a little bit more like and being just adventures, maybe a little bit more stale for me than the first half, which was like all the adventures were new. And now it's a little bit like, okay, I could do some like more than just have adventures at this point. And then, like, the very end, like, really just like turned that completely around for me. It's like, oh, good. We're doing more than having adventures. We're actually like thematically wrapping up everything and the adventures before like have more meaning now because they have like taught us these specific lessons that we are using. Um, I, yeah, I really, I thought it was just like a phenomenal ending in particular. I feel like this is not something we necessarily talk about all the time with our books is like, how did the ending work for us or not? But this is one where I think, um, like the ending usually isn't the most important part of a novel for me. Like, there's endings where there's a big twist. I mean, I think of actually uh, Use of Weapons, which was the very first novel that we read on this podcast, and in some ways one of the closest analogs in that it's also, you know, kind of like a big far future space opera adventure story with a lot of, like, kind of episodes in it. Um, Worth mentioning, I like this a lot better. Oh, yeah, me, me too, <laughs> me too, me too. But that, that's actually what I was going to bring up, yeah. where, like, the reason we talked so much about the ending was that it's a twist, and it's a twist that didn't work for either of us. We both had kind of the same issues with. Uh, whereas this is one that, like, the ending isn't a twist. Well, I guess there is a twist of, like, you know, Viv is actually the Empress, but, like, you were kind of getting, like, that wasn't, one, yeah. like, the hardest thing to guess, and two, like, doesn't right. actually happen at the end. It happens, you know, like, 60% of the way through the novel. <laughs> yeah, um, my... My wife uh, pegged that like literally as soon as you meet the Empress, my wa- my wife was like, oh, that's Viv, right? <laughs> it's not I wasn't that quick, but it was it yeah. was definitely one of those things. It was like there's something going on here with like Viv and the Emperor, like something <laughs> there, you know, and I don't know exactly what it is. My actually one of the questions I had early on, my my thought was that the Empress was the um like my very first thought was that the Empress was the computer program that like, like, like the computer program becomes sentient, like, you know, like singularity, blah, 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 gets super, super powerful. And then like comes back in time at some point for it's like creator for whatever reason. Um, 
so that it and like the question I had was like, oh, is there like some part of Viv's personality in it that like brings the Empress up? Because I also kind of have this feeling like Viv and the Empress are like in some way two different sides of the same coin. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely it was that I mean, it was a cool twist. Uh, but yeah, I, I just like kind of musing on the ending, like why do we maybe like not talk about endings in all the books that we read? And like, why is this like such a strong ending? Like, why is this one where the ending seems to have so much like thematic, like import importantness? I, I mean, one, one thing that, well, I think part of that to me gets into like the nature of what the story is. It's a story about in some sense, one person growing. And so like mm-hmm. what they grow to is like, everything that it's about. And right. so it matters a lot, you know, right. um, a story like, I mean, you know, leaving aside, well, so we've, you know, a lot of the books we've read are, are sort of plot heavy. It's not the case that this book is like more plot than other books that we no, have. No, no. I, I feel um, like science fiction books tend to be plot. It's like a mark yeah. of the genre in a lot of ways. Right. Like obviously not all books or whatever, but like, yeah. that's a common theme amongst right. sci-fi books. Right. And so I, I guess I think that maybe the differentiator is the sense in which this book takes the structure of an enlightenment, the enlightenment mm-hmm. of a being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it's like, oh, well, then the moment, the final moment is this like culmination in a in a way that right. perhaps the final battle, even a final battle is not a culmination in the same way that the final moment of enlightenment is a culmination. Right. And I think so, that that, you know, like to I, I would state that just maybe a slightly different way and say that like the ending is also the thematic like thesis statement of the book which is like frequently it's not it's just not always the case right like oftentimes like in so much as like what i'm most interested in in sci-fi novels is they're like big ideas often like the plot ending and the like most interesting big idea don't necessarily like those aren't the same things in a lot of novels mm. Um, it's like some point in the middle of the journey where the big idea really like exists the most. <laughs> um, mm. Or even in the beginning where it's like you're introduced to the big idea and this literalized technology and then just explore it a whole bunch. And like the ending is just one other place that you're exploring it. Right. Whereas here the themes being about like enlightenment and like the final culmination of like, you know, m- melding your hearts with others, like really can't happen until the end of the story. And so the like plot and themes come together at the end in a very satisfying way. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's funny cause it's always generally natural for us to talk about like the big ideas of a book, but in the case where the big idea has a lot to do with the ending that, that then like, you know, comes yeah. out a lot more. Right. Like I was just thinking about like, um, the ballad of black Tom, mm-hmm. which is certainly a, plot story you know it's yeah. a story oh, where yeah, the plot yeah, yeah. is significant um but the big ideas you know occur immediately <laughs> like you're dealing <laughs> right. with them from page one so it's like right. okay well if you're gonna jump to talking about the big ideas like there's no particular reason to focus you know on the on the end more than the right. beginning and the end has like one particular big idea that is like important yeah. and worth talking about and that we yeah, did i think we did too but but also yeah you're you're right it's sort of like different points hold either very different big ideas or just are always talking about some of the same ones. And it's not like the end in particular, you know, 
has like more import from that point of view. Yeah. Um, so one interesting, um, you know, kind of relating a little bit to that, to the nature of the, of the reveal slash epiphany slash enlightenment slash, you know, big idea at the end. Mm-hmm. Like one interesting thing that relates to that is I was thinking a little bit about some of the other things that we've read that have to do with like consciousness, um, and its connection to other consciousnesses. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, which you know, which ones are you thinking? Well, so I was thinking of the, um, nine Fox gambit. Um, actually. Oh, interesting. And yeah. I hadn't put that together, but yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's one. And then also, uh, Raven tower a little bit too, because of the way mm-hmm. that the gods interact with people. So in nine Fox gambit in particular, the way that two entities share one body, um, and, uh, Raven tower in particular, the way that, um, kind of belief in other beings gives them reality and solidity and power. Like those are some interesting, like, you know, this is a very different take on that kind of stuff in a lot of ways. Like, you know, the, Mm -hmm. like one thing that's really cool in this book and, and, and also, you know, hits at the world building stuff that we still haven't even gotten into, but because there's so much of it, but like the way that the cloud works, the way that if you have a soul, quote unquote, you can like, you know, you can like travel through the ether. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's like, it's really, it's fun to think about. So it it sort of relates to like classic sci-fi ideas of like uploading your consciousness or whatever. And you know, all that sort of stuff. But it, it, it kind of like is explicitly more fantastical than that because they, they call it, something different they call it your your soul moving like through the cloud which i really love Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and you know viv can't do that well that's that i think comes very much from uh lord of light by roger zelazny yeah like it's 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 actually something he calls out in the acknowledgments like he calls out lord of light as being a really big um influence but that's also you know like one of the most beautiful things about that novel is that like the whole novel like you never are told like this is technology. It's rather written fully mm-hmm. from the perspective of yeah. like, oh yeah, you have a soul. And when you die, you go to, you know, like either like you go to Nirvana or you get, you know, like reincarnated. And like, what does that mean? Well, it means there's a bunch of satellites in the sky that have hard drives and you have like implants in you. And when you die, you, you're, you know, your consciousness gets uploaded and then like pinged back to another body, or you actually get to like, just be a part of the sky cloud and like, you know, sort of like Mm -hmm. melt away. And that's what Nirvana is. Yep. God, that book is so (laughs) good. And you know, it's like, that's not described in the book itself per se, but that's, that's what it, and like, you know, so I felt that is actually just one. I love that about Lord of Light. And I thought it was a really cool thing that, yeah i really like how he's done it here too because it allows him to do a lot of fantasy things while kind of like merging the fantasy elements of journey of the west with like all these other completely different elements you know yeah um yeah it's really cool too how viv lacks the technological viv lacks the like nanites or whatever technological sort of components of her physical and mental form that make it possible for everybody else to upload themselves or whatever uh and so she can't (laughs) In other words, she has no soul. She's a soulless being. She's the right. only soulless being, like, more or less in existence. And, she, and so she has to travel slowly, um, which is really cool. It recapitulates the idea that, like, she's this somehow sort of weak being in a world of gods and monsters. Um, right. And, and, and ensures that whatever she's doing is this kind of, like, difficult pilgrimage rather than, like, mm-hmm. a, a quick, you know, jaunt on a on a on a like right. super spaceship <laughs> right it is nice that they get better and better at transporting her over time yeah that's also cool 
Um, yeah. They get better and better, like more and more awesome ships, which is an, an awesome space adventure thing that I totally love. Like, who doesn't love spaceships that like are really fast and cool? <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, just like, you know, I one thing I love is that like, you know, they're all called ships, but like they uh, especially something like the star is just like not something you and I would like when we hear the word ship, we don't think of yeah. like a rod that can like, you know, take any shape and like move you through the cloud and like, you know, like right. the way that you want it to. But it, it feels kind of like, you know, just in the same way that like, you know, we don't use our cell phones for like phone functionality as much as we use yeah. it for all these other things now, yeah. but we still call it a phone. It's like, yeah, of course they still call those ships, even though they don't yeah. look anything like what we want a spaceship to look like. So now. it's worth saying that that is another explicit journey to the West thing. The monkey King uh, possesses, a rod just like that um uh, and it can change shape and it's his main weapon and he uses it to great effect in lots of different adventures but the uh, the really interesting thing about that is the origin less like less more of a detail in the original and like less emphasized in some a lot of retellings of journey of the west is the fact is like the origin of the monkey king's rod it actually originally is a piece of like the milky way Oh, cool. And that's really cool. I just love how like he's yeah, that is he's neat. taken and that's like a couple sentences in Turn right. of the West. You know what I mean? That's not a big deal or whatever. But like, I mean, it, it just establishes that it's super powerful and, and whatever. But like, mm-hmm. I love that Max has taken that and spun that into this whole other version of this thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's this like really, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of in, in the same ways that like a lot of sort of old Buddhist legends gave us like, you know, became uh, this like technological like world in Lord of Light. Max has taken this 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 you know in you know this sort of folk novel I guess you'd call it and like spun it into this totally other thing. I love I I just love it. It's so cool. <laughs> That's really cool. What do we think about the way that like the explicit way that um, a lot of things in this world you know, are, are like demons or monsters and like, they're not really, they're sentient, but they're like explicitly sort of gruesome or evil seeming like, especially, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of the, the, the creatures that they fight. And then at some, in some, Mm -hmm. in many cases, in most cases, they end up allying with eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the spider creatures who they fight in the first, when they first, like who eventually they end up like being able to work with like dancing with. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. I yeah I know you love dancing Fucking spiders. <laughs> <laughs> you you and your spider love is like long documented on this podcast. Yeah, got to make sure the world knows. Um, I so I am going to answer that question with like kind of another question, which isn't like me asking you a factual question so much as like Gray starts out pretty bad. He's mm-hmm. doing some real bad shit. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I had was, did I think that he had actually redeemed himself? Ah. And like, if I do, at what point was that true? And I think that I don't, I don't know what the answer is for sure. Uh, Redemption is tricky, but I do think whatever the answer is, like my answer is that he redeemed himself in my eyes later than he seemed to have like redeemed himself in the eyes of the other characters. Mm. Like there was one thing where the characters were like very quick to forgive each other. And like, maybe that's actually a somewhat human trait of like, you have this like big, bad, evil thing, like far away in your like factory doing these like big, bad things. And then like you meet the person and it's a 
person mm-hmm. and all of a sudden these like big bad things have like a different weight to them because there's like here's a human being kind of like scare quotes around that who like you can actually attach those actions to i don't i don't know uh, this is again this is not me stating anything so much as like my answer to that is sort of like with this other question that i'm still working through of like who needed redemption and like did they actually redeem themselves yeah i think this is a really cool thing about this story um it's somewhat rare i think for this type of pulpy adventure action tale to involve this much redemption mm-hmm. i think that's an interesting feature of the original journey of the west also there's right. a huge, yeah it does from yeah. you talking about it it feels like a thing yeah. like a, one of the themes that actually like really yeah. stayed between the two yeah yeah and totally. maybe part of the reason it's such a big theme in here is because of journey to the yeah west. i think that's true i also think it's really interesting that you know given all the things that he's changed like he, he, you know, Max has been very willing, especially with like the crown and the way that Viv and Viv's psychology slash, you know, putting a lot of what was Monkey King into her. Like, I think it's interesting that he has kept this. I think it's it's interesting to it's a really interesting and good strategy for bringing a more um, a more welcoming open morality into a genre that is often very um, closed and uh, judgmental. There's a lot of like kind of black and white morality in science fiction. Totally. Which is kind of ironic given that the sort of like atheism often sort of like associated with it as well. And the sort of like materialist humanist kind of, kind of stuff. But like also a lot of that is very, like black and white morality. Yeah. It's very it's like there's the good and guys and there's the bad yeah. guys. Yeah. There's the protagonists and the antagonists. And so I really, there's the heroes and villains. I really love the, the, the move here, which is to say like, we can have serious fights with people, but we can also mm-hmm. forgive them. And then we mm-hmm. can do other things that aren't fighting with them. And we can do that over and over again. It doesn't doing that move doesn't require like the perfect interlocutor. Right. You know, it's actually really interesting that you were um, you mentioned like having some books that you thought were similar to this and then pulled out Raven Tower and uh, 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 Nine Fox Gambit. And those were not that that was I, I had actually expected you to bring up Binti and like the Binti trilogy, oh, yeah. actually, because of this right here, yeah. um, because the the question of like, you know, diplomacy is a really big theme in Binti yeah. and this idea of can people who were our enemies be our allies now or in the future? What does it take to do that? What is like actual, you know, not just forgiveness, but also also. Um, like, how do you make your previously bad and maybe bad in ignorant ways, but still like harm, harmful actions? Like, how do you atone for those in the eyes of other people? Not in the eyes of some cosmic God and morality, but just like, how do you make up to other people the like bad things that you did to them? Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a perfect comparison. And that that was something I was thinking about, too. This like when I was reading it, at least this this um this way of construing how we can interact with people we fight against is I think really important. I I, I really value it. Mm-hmm. I think the world should have more of it. I think mm-hmm. in particular, it reminds me of the way that children interact um, mm-hmm. in a good way, being able to have like a, a, 
a battle with someone where you're like legitimately competing against them like you want to win you want to win the wrestling match and then like the next game you play is that you're on a team like instantly right and there's no lag it just happens i love that i think that's the right way to to be at the same time i really agree with what you said about it being uncomfortable it's difficult like when they forgive gray so easily especially shiara it's like really <laughs> like how can yeah. you do that like like how though right <laughs> you know right. he was this- and like by so- some element of it is like oh he you know didn't fully understand what he was doing because he's a child and like that right and that seems to be like one of the you know ways that they do it yeah but i don't i don't know i also like i sometimes wonder if i am as forgiving as that like i sometimes wonder if i like fully agree that like we should be that forgiving like what beyond just me like you know sometimes i wonder if like in the real world it's actually you know it's like should we be that forgiving in some sort of like a a cosmic moral sense like sure uh, should we be in a more kind of um, tactical sense, maybe? Like, how how easily should we forget? How easily should we trust? I think those are some questions that maybe, like, I, I come down a little bit, like, harder on than the novel does. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things the novel thinks is that the stuff... I think there's a recognition in the story that it's difficult, mm-hmm. even though they are quicker mm-hmm. to do it, perhaps, than I would be. Um, I think there's a recognition. Like, it, it doesn't never come up again you know what i mean there are trust issues that kind of recur in this way throughout Mm -hmm. the story and i think that's um that's a really good way of saying like the the kind of implicit message to me is that this is a practice this is not something that you just like you know you make one big push and then you've done it and you're done it's something that you Mm -hmm. have to struggle with and it's difficult and it hurts and like you slowly maybe make progress against it right well, and that's a, I think that is a very like kind of Buddhist conception of morality in particular, um, or at least in, in terms of like my understanding of Buddhism. Um, again, I, like Buddhism is such a big thing. I mean, it's such a big religion and there's so many various like sects and like different ways of thinking that like there's no one thing of like what Buddhism is as much as we like talk about it that way in the West. But like the type of Buddhism that I've studied and practiced, like very much views enlightenment, not as like a thing that happens to you once and then you're enlightened, but rather like the constant process and struggle that everyone is going through. Like it's not a goal, it's not an end point, nor is it a state of being. It is rather like the process by which you, you know, strive to be better, essentially. Yeah. So what do you think about the way this this Empress of Forever handles these kind of religious ideas. We've talked a lot about religion in science fiction. I think this book has another right. another way of kind of interrogating that intersection. Right. I mean, I like it. Uh, uh, I don't... It's what I'm trying to think of. Like, uh, we've talked... A, like, I've said a lot of things that maybe in the kind of talking about the themes and morality and, like, you know, I don't want to just rehash and say, say those same things again, but, like, I would think about a lot of that kind of, like, in the larger sort of, like, religious themes umbrella is that the book seems to, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know Max's religious beliefs personally, so that I'm, I'm just saying I'm not trying to say, like, oh, Max thinks this, but, like, the book itself as a text feels like a, you know, one that is kind of, like, in some ways a... Uh, like a moral text, one that is like interested in morality and in like kind of like religious themes generally. How do you feel about, you know, a lot of the religion that has come into some of the other books that we've read 
has not been well with we have read some other books that definitely deal with um buddhism and science fiction coming together totally totally but, totally. but um do you, this is this is the second most explicit yeah. after 10 billion <laughs> days though exactly I mean, yeah totally yeah um but how do you so now having read a couple of those i don't know what your experience in in general is with buddhism specifically in science fiction but like do you have any thoughts on Buddhism and science fiction versus other religions in science fiction or like kind of what, you know, is, is what is kind of unique about that or what is odd about that? Especially because Buddhism yeah. is Buddhism, like science fiction in some sense, or at least the science fiction we grew up on is very American. And America right. does not have a lot of Buddhists. Or Anglo at yeah. least. I mean, it's a lot of like American and English right. and British, that kind of thing. I, I would. Yeah. So, you know, Lord of Light is a book we've brought up on this podcast many times, I mean, this, this episode and also previous episodes. Um, and you know, and I will say too, I think we talk about this theme like generally a little bit in our like, like third or fourth episode, the Sparrow pre-read. Um, we talk a lot about religion and science fiction, but I do think for me, one of the kind of like key pieces about this question of Buddhist Buddhism and science fiction is that like, often it is like non Buddhists, writing about like their kind of like westernized version of mm -hmm. what they think Buddhism is. Um, this like I've brought up neon Genesis Evangelion like a few times recently on this podcast too, because I just rewatched it. It's on Netflix now, but like one of the really interesting things that that does is there's all this sort of like Christian iconography in neon Genesis Evangelion. I mean, down to like Evangelion being like evangelical, like kind of like a play on that word. The, I think the Japanese title of neon Genesis Evangelion is something like, you know, like the new gospels of like, <laughs> you know, something, it's something like that. It's like, they're called angels. There's all these crosses, that kind of thing. But ultimately the story is, told by folks who are like Shinto Buddhist, at least like culturally, whether or not their personal beliefs are, uh, who don't actually understand Christianity that well, don't care to understand Christianity that well, and are mostly using the Christian symbology because it's exotic looking. And like, you know, uh, Ano uh, Hideki, right? Uh, the, 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 the author, the director of Ava has like said that outright that like, oh yeah, it doesn't actually like mean anything outside of like, we thought it looked really cool and felt kind of like exotic and foreign. Um, and, but people read a lot into it. And I feel that way about a lot of Buddhism in American science fiction. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Buddhism in American science fiction that is sort of like, um, you know, something like the war against the Kator, which has this sort of, um, kind of like a leadership What's institute. That? Oh, oh, David Gerald's The War Against the Couture. It's this, uh, it's like a, <laughs> it's a series of books that I read as a kid, uh, published in like the 80s and 90s, um, for all that, like, you know, for all that, like, we've been waiting on, like, the last book of Game of Thrones for, like, a long time. We've been waiting for the last book of the War Against the Couture <laughs> series for well over 25 years now, and I'm still fucking waiting for it. Every, like, couple of years, he has an update about how he's still writing oh, it. Boy. Like, I'm not even kidding about this. Um, so... Uh, but like, you know, one of the books has this kind of like, you know, sort of like Leadership Institute style, like mindfulness, like, you know, sort of like a bunch of people coming together and doing mindfulness exercises type stuff. Um, 
so it's just very much a throwaway reference um i think lord of light too like has a better understanding of maybe the historical historical story of the buddha right like it understands the kind of like story of the buddha as it exists on the page but also i think takes from that a very kind of like christian ideology where it's like it's the story of the Buddha, but ultimately the Buddha is like a savior figure who is like come to save you and bring you to heaven. It's actually a lot more like Jesus from a thematic point of view than it is like the Buddha from a thematic point of view, um, where the Buddha is not there to like save you from society is not there to like, you know, like lead a rebellion against like the Kings and Queens or whatever, but rather there to like save you from yourself, <laughs> like help you understand yourself. Um, whereas Jesus, I think is a little bit more of the kind of like rebellion figure. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to get too deep into that. I, I do feel though that oftentimes like the Buddhist themes are maybe like Buddhist imagery with like what are ultimately Christian themes. And this did not feel like that is, is, is mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say. Like this didn't, this felt like Buddhist imagery with like what were essentially Buddhist themes. And obviously what are Buddhist themes? It depends on the type of Buddhism you're talking about, the like, you know, school, the like individual teacher, the, you know, the like country, the like century, whatever, like those change over time. What Buddhism is changes drastically across time and space. But like ultimately, like it felt like it was coherent, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, sorry. A long walk to a simple sentence. <laughs> No, it's good. It's good. I think one interesting thing about that to me that, uh, that I think about sometimes is religious technology, which is a real thing in the real world. But um, that's uh, an uh, like a set of ideas that's played within in science fiction, especially, you know, in really interesting ways, because science fiction loves technology. Um, in the real mm -hmm. world, you, know, you might think of something like a Bible or a cathedral or a prayer wheel um, as or like a uh, some, you know, uh, a, a bracelet made out of beads, uh, you know, uh, you might think of something like that as a piece of religious technology, which is to say it's, uh, an item that was fabricated using like the same material processes that you use to make any item. And it has a purpose. And like some of them right. are better than others. And there is a, there are, you know, economies and industries behind these items. And there's a kind of technological progress involved in like, making different versions of them that can do different things, making bigger ones, you know, making more beautiful ones, making ones that kind of are better at like helping you attain the religious goal that you're trying to attain. You know, I mean, this is also true maybe in terms of like information technology yeah. and the ways in which like, you know, the control of information technology has mirrored the kind of like control of the like religious ideology and like who controls it can control right morality right <laughs> yeah and i think that there's some interesting uh relationship between those ideas in this book i mean for one thing there's the the nature of of viv and, and like what it is that she is trying to do the way that she's trying to achieve domination is by like you know achieving this kind of technological supremacy that allows her to uh dictate whether what other people will like see and hear and think and feel um mm -hmm. and then there's the concept of the cloud and the concept of a mm -hmm. soul, as described in this book, which are um, which are really fun, and and it's interesting to think about, um, you know, a lot of the uh, uploading your mind stuff is associated with the singularity and the rapture of the nerds and those kinds of ideas. Um, 
the first book I think that I read that like went really far with that stuff was Chris Strauss's Accelerando. And like, there's so many mm-hmm. other books that do it too, mm-hmm. but, but like <laughs> that book is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that book. Like uploaded lobster AI and shit. It's really yeah, I like fun that to read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, um, but like, yeah, I guess if you, if you like Gonzo, like <laughs> kind of like space, spacey books, that's a good one. <laughs> but like an interesting thing about those books is, is how relatively little religion there is, despite the fact that what we're talking yeah. about is really in the realm of religion. I mean, we're talking yeah. about, you know, moving your incorporeal essence, like from place to place, from age to age, from epoch to epoch, you know, like we're talking mm-hmm. about like you know, constructing heavens, literally. Um, yeah. We're talking about... Ru- you know, it's a science fiction book that I think does religion really well. What? And it's like maybe surprising given the author. What? Um, Carl Sagan's Contact. Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, the novel in particular um, has like long sections that are like debates between various religious figures. And there are like different religious figures who like believe different things and different scientists who believe different things. And like the big thematic end of the novel is actually like the main scientist character having to like take something on faith (laughs) and like actually realizing that she is like more closely aligned with like one of the particular like religious figures than she is with like some of the other scientists. And it's a very like, it's a really fascinating end to a novel, especially by a guy who like wrote about atheism and religion and humanism and like himself was not religious at all. Um, But that, you know, I think, I think these kinds of ideas are, are worth interacting with and being really intellectually honest about like what faith is yeah for sure i mean science fiction has done it well and done it poorly we did our uh, minisode about the star atheism does it well and does it poorly of course we did our minisode about the star which is like a really that's the arthur Arthur c clark short story which is a really interesting example of like an attempt to do it you know by a good writer who i don't think pulls it off completely um, although there's some really cool ideas there. I mean, we may disagree right. with the, you know, exactly what we think about the story, but yeah, I think, I think it pulls off the one thing it's trying to do fairly well. I know you and I slightly disagree on like yeah. the degree to which they pull it off. But then, but. you know, I think like th- this tradition in science fiction of dealing with like religion is, 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 is really interesting because science fiction hasn't always like so much of it, the very, very earliest, most ancient, like antecedents to modern science, modern science fiction um, were rather removed from religion. And I think a lot of science fiction is somewhat has historically been kind of a little bit removed, although it will deal with it here and there. I'm thinking about things like the, you know, like the story in Orlando Furioso, which is a Renaissance, you know, uh, uh, long Renaissance, like tale of this, like chivalric knight who has many adventures. And among the many other things that happens is he goes into space (laughs) <laughs> and it's like okay well that's not really science i mean you could argue a lot about how much that's science fiction but certainly it's at least dealing with some tropes that will eventually become science fiction like tropes um yeah at the same time like a thing we've talked about a lot is the like debt that most science fiction owes to robinson crusoe and the swiss yeah. family robinson and these like robinson style stories i mean down to you know like lost in space, literally naming their family Robinson in homage to these other like Robinson stories uh, in the same way that the Swiss family Robinson named their family Robinson in homage to Robinson Crusoe. Uh, And like 
those stories are deeply religious, all of them. Right. Like that's actually a place where like the religion ties deeply into the like Robinson Crusoe stories. I don't think Robinson Crusoe is that religious, to be honest. I mean, it's Uh, he 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 finds and converts Friday. I mean, yeah, but it's not a big deal story like him converting. I disagree, actually. I I feel like that's actually like, you know, I mean, it's also very colonialist, right? These stories. But I feel like the colonialism and the like religious themes are part and parcel like you can't pull those two apart necessarily. i mean it's like, like almost the a reason throwaway. that colonialism is <laughs> i i just don't I think 100 disagree with I, I think that. the I think vast majority of the i think story it's the biggest deal is about this colonial project in its material forms it's about you know like right but the colonial project is inherently a religious one where like the reason we have the right to this colonialism is because of I mean, ultimately, Jesus, right? Because, like, we are the, like, correct in terms of our religion. Yeah, that, I mean, that comes up, but it's just not a big part of the story. It's 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 mentioned, you know, and I think that that's kind of my takeaway from a lot of old, really old science fiction. Like, the older you go, and or the antecedents of science fiction, if you prefer, like, there's a lot of, certainly, like, it's part of the world, and they'll they'll not avoid it entirely. But there's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's also a lot of, like, myth. And a lot of reference to things that are kind of like considered to occupy another realm other than other than religion, you know, right. like, I mean, if you're talking like Mary Shelley exactly. or something like that, I completely agree with you. 100%. But of course, you could I'm say, you know, there's there. certainly like elements of religion in the, in the story. There certainly are characters who are religious. People say religious things like it matters to people. It matters to characters right, and right. to the author. But something like in, I think, Shelley, that's like much less important than, for instance, in the Swiss family Robinson, like their religion plays a huge part in that story. Well, that, I, that's different. That's not the same as as Robinson Crusoe. That I would say religion is a bit much bigger part of that book. Um, right. And, and like, it depends on what we're talking about, too, of course. Like, ultimately, a lot of the chivalric stories kind of end with, you know, big religious, like, wham-bang conclusions. But mm-hmm. I guess the, the the thing that I'm thinking when I when I think through all this is kind of like, it's interesting to me how this genre that has really, its relationship with religion has fluctuated in a lot of different ways. There almost seems to be... Uh, more interest in combining some of these technological and science fictional tropes with religion now than there was in the than there, oh, in like than the there, than there has 70s. been in other times. Um, yeah, it's not that there's yeah, never. Been I think golden but, age science fiction is like relatively uninterested in religion. Yeah, and it's not that it like I mean you know there's 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 always there's a lot of you know exceptions to this. I'm, oh, I'm there's always exceptions. Making totally, you know broad totally. generalizations, but like. But in so much as like, that's all we can do. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're making fair. I ones. think it's just really interesting that like, it's relatively easy for us to like read multiple Buddhist sci-fi books in the last, like however many months, you know, that, right. you know, I, I mean, we could have read more if that was our goal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But like we've, I mean, I feel like that <laughs> is harder than like Christian sci-fi books, for instance. Sure. But it's still like, it's still, it's just like a really cool, interesting thing because I think that these are. By by being more interested in this stuff, um, mm-hmm. science fiction stories can, you know, get like new and different access points to ideas that have always been interesting to them and to new totally. ideas. Um, right. Like thinking. Ex- or I think Brown Girl in the Ring and the kind of like Afro-Caribbean language yeah. or language uh, religion. Yeah. Like totally. A totally different. Religious totally. That's 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 tradition. That's, that's an awesome. Comp. I really like that. It's like. You know, there was so much that had been left on the table that now is mm-hmm. is optionable. Like, 
it's just really cool. One thing to thinking about colonialism. So I, <laughs> I, I being sick and like kind of out of it, I was actually listening to our um, semiosis episodes with Nate the other day, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, like lying in like my sweaty fevered puddle in like the hundred degree weather. And, you know, one thing we mentioned in there and that I know we also talk about in the Sparrow episodes uh, to bring those up, too, is this idea of like when it comes to colonialism, this question of like, like, I think the Sparrow does a particularly bad job of this. And in a way that I think is useful to contrast to this book, not to just like shit on that one, but it's actually like a useful comparison of like, you know, it's this idea of like, oh, well, this other planet with these like other like intelligent beings exist. So, of course, they go and they land and they make contact. Like, of course, that is what you do. Um, and we brought up in that episode of like, that's never a question they ever ask themselves right. of like, do you contact them first? Like, is that actually your right to go and do that? Yeah. And I think it it's also, you know, we talk about in semiosis of like, okay, in semiosis, they don't know whether there is intelligent life. And in fact, they think there's not intelligent life. So they like go down and they, you know, make contact slash just like go to colonize the planet anyway. And like there, maybe it's a little bit more understandable but like there's still the question of like does the life there have its own rights like we would assume that you know like a dog or a cat or a pig have like certain rights that are maybe not human rights but are like some of their own so there's a question of like does another planet with life on it have some of its own rights and that's a question that this book like actually like it actually asks it right like Viv slash the Empress, like in colonizing the cloud, like drives out the bleed, like yeah. takes over their ecosystem. And that's what they are. That's why they're killing things is because because you colonize their land, they have yeah. nowhere else to go. And they are trying to fight for their own survival, yeah. even though they're very alien and they look very different. And we don't really know what their motivations are. And like, I, I liked that. I liked that that was the sort of like that Viv gets to point out to the Empress the exact same, like almost word for word question that we pointed out that the Sparrow didn't ask, which was like, did you even ask? Yeah. Did you even think that like, instead of just going there, you can ask the denizens of that place. Can I come? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I really like that too. I think that's, that's like, one of the things this book does really well is try to be aware of the morality of the things that are happening on screen. I mean, we talked about this a little mm-hmm. with the with the crown before, mm-hmm. but there's Viv spends a lot of time and Zange, both of them, both parties to this like coercive technology, spend a lot of time thinking about and being affected by what the coercive right. technology is like doing to them or what the possibilities it suggests to them. And right. talking about it like on page, yeah, that's really <laughs> like important. Max spends a lot of time talking about yeah, it. That's a that's a dis, that's a proactive decision that he made that separates this from um, the source material, and like right. it's a super important one. And I think he does he right. tries to do that as often as he can with a lot of other aspects of the book too. I mean, like the this has to do with the redemption arc, the many many redemptive redemption arcs, and the many like sort of forgiveness moments in the book. But it also has to do with like lots of little things like, you know, in the very beginning when Viv is like, you know, talking to um, her college friend, uh, Maida or Maeve or something like that. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. In the very beginning, like, you know, it's an opportunity like we sort of have already gotten the sense in that at that point in the beginning of the novel that Viv is kind of like an asshole in some ways. But she's still mm-hmm. like 
it's never made so simple as that. She still has this friend who she is actually like slightly vulnerable with. Even in the beginning when she's like not yet had her arc, she still has mm-hmm. these like moments where it's like, oh, okay, like actually, you know, even an asshole has a friend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Like they do. Yep. Like that's, that's real. Mm-hmm. It's just a kind of moral maturity that I really appreciate. I do too. I like that a lot. Yeah. All right. So um, I am flagging. (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Yeah. So Adrian, I have a question for you. Yeah. What is your favorite piece of technology in this world Max has created? Could be a ship, could be a weapon, could be a planet, thing, or... The Orn songs. The fact that, like, the Orn people have, like, songs that they sing and chant with each other that, like, help them remember that they are, like, not the ships, that they are actually people flying the ships, and they're connected to each other. Yeah, I love that. I love Orn. Orn's my (laughs) fucking favorite. I fucking love Orn. I love everything about Orn. You know what I love about Orn? I love how, like, for the section when they're on Orn, it's, like, a grimdark story. Like... It's so dark and weird and like, like post-apocalyptic, but like far future post-apocalypse instead of like now post-apocalypse. Orn had like very real 10 billion days energy. Oh yeah. I fucking love that part. That's sort of like those just like far future kind of like falling apart cities that are like so advanced that they're like crumbling kind of thing. Yeah. Also, uh, a little bit of, um. Like, I also kind of think of, like, uh, Jack Vance or maybe, like, Gene yeah, Wolfe's totally. book of the New Sun. Oh, yeah. Like, a that lot of kind that of stuff. thing. All of that stuff. Like, you know, sort of, like, stuff that's so far advanced that, like, entropy is taking its toll even while it's still advancing. Total, yeah. I, total Jack Vance yeah. vibes. Like, I totally. love this, like, decaying far future. Like, the sun is dying. Like, yeah. Ugh. So God, good, man. Reading reading some like dying Earth stories could be fun at some yeah. point, even even for a bonus I'm a episode. Hundred percent down with that. Um, <laughs> there's also like maybe Elric of Meldebone or whatever, like some of the Elric stuff, like where it's just like, oh, I don't know. What well, that it's is. it's like um, it's more fantasy than science fiction, I guess. Um, right, but, yeah, but I mean the that's same for vibe. the dying Earth stuff, very much like. Right. Like the question of is it science fiction right. or fantasy is I feel like one yeah. of the things that like the entropy has like destroyed the difference between the yeah, two. <laughs> totally. Yeah. El- Elric stories are like that. They're about this like, cool. you know, these like fantastical adventures in this like distant future where like various civilizations have died and been reborn and then died a thousand times and then been reborn in one yeah. like one last time. And it's like everything I is decaying and dying and like, but nonetheless, you have it. to fight for the last scraps of, you know, order among the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> totally here for it. Yeah. What was your favorite piece of it's technology? It's hard to decide. I like many things. I am tempted to say the crown, not because I like, like it because I don't like it. It's right, obviously because sucks, it's like because it's really interesting. Yeah. It's just so like a thing that isn't dealt with a lot in that isn't dealt with at a psychological level a lot in like stories of like highly advanced technology is like not freedom but coercion you know like a a lot of sort of post-singularity stories have a lot of sort of like massive freedom like what what if this freedom existed what if that freedom existed xyz whatever well there's also like whole new kinds of coercion that you can imagine that aren't real but like that we have fantasy stories about you know fake news yeah exactly um 
social media yeah whoa exactly techno fascism yeah yeah so so okay <laughs> but, so but actually but keep it at an intimate level you know the the, the thing that the yeah. book can do is kind of keep it at this like highly intimate psychological level of two people you know and we're in the head of one mm-hmm. of them and like one of the kind of interesting things there too is the mirror of like zange has her crown on her head but then like mirror zange has like crowned all of her people <laughs> yeah so good so good. <laughs> I also really like um, the clothes. So like when Viv shows up in the far future and she's like first given clothes because she shows up naked in this green egg. Oh, totally. That shit was cool. Yeah, they like I'd forgotten about the that. clothes yeah. like mold themselves to her and like can change form and be different clothes if she wants. Like, like do all this stuff. Right. Right. I love that. That shit was really cool. I love the idea too of they're sort of like, well, of course, if clothes are going to act that way, then you're going to have like robes. Because why would going to be a lot closer to like you know, like yeah, Buddhist style robes, and they're going to be to anything else. The ultimate clothing. God, yeah. It's speaking of robes, I would like not mind some. You know, uh, what are what are they called? The like skirts that you wear in Burma. A longy. Like, long yeah, I wouldn't mind a longy right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, honestly like my roommate who we are both friends with like has one and honestly i know i gave it to him i saw right i saw him wearing <laughs> it at one point and like my thought was like oh i wish i had one of those then my second thought was like can i buy a skirt like where would i buy a skirt that would like fit and like be sturdy enough to be yeah. actually the thing that i want there i mean you can I mean, I know I can't, but I mean, the problem is like most women's skirts aren't actually that like they aren't actually like long flowy, like designed to cool you down kinds of fabrics. They're like either made out of wool or polyester and they're like tighter. So it's not actually doing the thing that like I want it to do um, as opposed to like I'm worried about wearing a skirt. Those do exist, though. They do. I've been trying to find one. All right. <laughs> I will see if I can ask around. Ooh. <laughs> um cool so are there any other sort of like i mean i think we like the book any sort of last final wrap up just like if you like this seriously check out journey of the west it's so dope cool <laughs> cool yeah and i'll link to the edition it was yeah. like adam something arthur right? whaley that translation arthur whaley yeah yeah so i will link to that in the show notes as always yeah, I don't think we know what our next book is. Like, again, I, my being sick is sort of like throwing a wrench. So next week we will have a bonus episode and then we will like have a new book in the second week of August. And we'll, there's maybe a guess, maybe not. It's again, I'm, I'm kind of like behind on scheduling it's stuff. So doing, doing my best here. Um, yeah, so August should be something fun. I know we have a couple of like ideas on the docket for the next few months um including doing some like you know chinese science fiction and some other stuff so the next couple of months should be fun we'll we'll, we'll have some cool cool books looking books coming up forward here. man yeah all right well thank you matt as always Word. this was a ton of fun uh thank you everyone listening you know an hour and a half two hours in however long it's been uh, thank you to WJ for our music and to Noah Bradley for our artwork. If you want to chat with us, tell us what you thought of the book, anything like that. Uh, we're on Twitter at SpectologyPod or SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Especially if you have any questions about Journey to the West or whatever, I will I will like send those on to Matt. So, you know, we'll we'll answer anything you have going on there. Uh yeah, I think that's it. I think we're we're good. Awesome, dude. Sweet dude. This is fun. 
All right. See you later. Talk to you later.